Section 16 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Nance. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Section 16. The Enfant Terrible of Literature. Myself. I am the enfant terrible of literature and science. If I cannot, and I know I cannot, get the literary and scientific bigwigs to give me a shilling, I can, and I know I can, heave bricks into the middle of them. Blake, Dante, Virgil, and Tennyson Talking it over, we agreed that Blake was no good because he learned Italian at sixty in order to study Dante, and we knew Dante was no good because he was so fond of Virgil and Virgil was no good, because Tennyson ran him, and as for Tennyson, well, Tennyson goes without saying. My Father and Shakespeare My father is one of the few men I know who say they do not like Shakespeare. I could forgive my father for not liking Shakespeare if it was only because Shakespeare wrote poetry, but this is not the reason. He dislikes Shakespeare because he finds him so very coarse. He also says he likes Tennyson, and this seriously aggravates his offense. Tennyson We were saying what a delightful dispensation of providence it was that prosperous people will write their memoirs. We hoped Tennyson was writing his. 1890 P.S. We think his son has done nearly as well. 1898 Walter Pater and Matthew Arnold Mr. Walter Pater's style is, to me, like the face of some old woman who has been to Madame Rachel and had herself enameled. The bloom is nothing but powder and paint, and the odor is cherry blossom. Mr. Matthew Arnold's odor is as the faint sickliness of Hawthorne. My Random Passages At the Century Club, a friend very kindly and hesitatingly ventured to suggest to me that I should get someone to go over my manuscript before printing. A judicious editor, he said, would have prevented me from printing many a bit which, it seemed to him, was written too recklessly and offhand. The fact is that the more reckless and random a passage appears to be, the more carefully it has been submitted to friends and considered and reconsidered. Without the support of friends I should never have dared to print one half of what I have printed. I am not one of those who can repeat the general confession unreservedly. I should say rather— I have left unsaid much that I am sorry I did not say, but I have said little that I am sorry for having said, and I am pretty well on the whole, thank you. Moral Try Your Strengths There are people who, if they only had a slot, might turn a pretty penny as moral try your strengths, like those we see in railway stations for telling people their physical strength when they have dropped a penny in the slot. In a way, they have a slot, which is their mouths, and people drop pennies in by asking them to dinner, and then they try their strength against them and get snubbed. But this way is roundabout and expensive. We want a good automatic asinometer, by which we can tell at a moderate cost how great or how little of a fool we are. Populous Vault If people like being deceived, and this can hardly be doubted, there can rarely have been a time during which they can have had more of the wish than now. The literary, scientific, and religious worlds vie with one another in trying to gratify the public. 
Men and Monkeys. In his latest article, February 1892, Professor Garner says that the chatter of monkeys is not meaningless, but that they are conveying ideas to one another. This seems to me hazardous. The monkeys might with equal justice conclude that in our magazine articles or literary and artistic criticisms, we are not chattering idly, but are conveying ideas to one another. One Touch of Nature One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. Should it not be marks, not makes? There is one touch of nature, or natural feature, which marks all mankind as of one family. P.S. Surely it should be of ill nature. One touch of ill nature marks, or several touches of ill nature mark, the whole world kin. Genuine Feeling In the Times of Today, June 4, 1887, there is an obituary notice of a Reverend Mr. Knight, who wrote about 200 songs, among others, She Wore a Wreath of Roses. The Times says that, though these songs have no artistic merit, they are full of genuine feeling, or words to this effect, as though a song which was full of genuine feeling could by any possibility be without artistic merit. George Meredith The Times, in a leading article, says, January 3, 1899, a talker, as Mr. George Meredith has somewhere said, involves the existence of a talkee, or words to this effect. I said what comes to the same thing as this in Life and Habit in 1877, and I repeated it in the preface to my translation of the Iliad in 1898. I do not believe George Meredith has said anything to the same effect, but I have read so very little of that writer, and have so utterly rejected what I did read, that he may well have done so without my knowing it. He damned Erwan, as in Chapman and Hall's Reader in 1871, and, as I am still raw about this after twenty-eight years, I am afraid unless I say something more I shall be taken as writing these words seriously. I prefer to assert that the Times writer was quoting from my preface to the Iliad, published a few weeks earlier, and fathering the remark on George Meredith. By the way, the Times did not give so much as a line to my translation in its Books of the Week, though it was duly sent to them. Froud and Freeman I think it was last Saturday, April 9th, at any rate, it was a day just thereabouts, the Times had a leader on Froude's appointment as Regis Professor of Modern History at Oxford. It said Froude was perhaps our greatest living master of style, or words to that effect, only that, like Freeman, he was too long, i.e., only he is a habitual offender against the most fundamental principles of his art. If then Froude is our greatest master of style, what are the rest of us? There was a much better article yesterday on Marbeau, on which my namesake, A.J. Butler, got a dressing for talking rubbish about style. 1892 Style In this day's Sunday Times, there is an article on Mrs. Browning's letters, which begins with some remarks about style. It is recorded, says the writer, of Plato that in a rough draft of one of his dialogues found after his death, the first paragraph was written in seventy different forms. Wordsworth spared no pains to sharpen and polish to the utmost the gifts with which nature had endowed him, and Cardinal Newman, one of the greatest masters of English style, has related in an amusing essay the pains he took to acquire his style. 
I never knew a writer yet who took the smallest pains with his style and was at the same time readable. Plato's having had seventy shies at one sentence, it's quite enough to explain to me why I dislike him. A man may and ought to take a great deal of pains to write clearly, tersely, and euphemistically. He will write many a sentence three or four times over. To do much more than that is worse than not rewriting at all. He will be at great pains to see that he does not repeat himself, to arrange his matter in the way that shall best enable the reader to master it, to cut out superfluous words, and even more to eschew irrelevant matter. But in each case he will be thinking not of his own style, but of his reader's convenience. Men like Newman and R. L. Stevenson seem to have taken pains to acquire what they called a style as a preliminary measure, as something that they had to form before their writings could be of any value. I should like to put it on record that I never took the smallest pains with my style, have never thought about it, and do not know or want to know whether it is a style at all or whether it is not, as I believe and hope, just common, simple straightforwardness. I cannot conceive how any man can take thought for his style without loss to himself and his readers. I have, however, taken all the pains that I had patience to endure in the improvement of my handwriting, which, by the way, has a constant tendency to resume feral characteristics, and also with my manuscript, generally, to keep it clean and legible. I am having a great tidying just now, in the course of which the manuscript of Erewhon turned up, and I was struck with the great difference between it and the manuscript of the authoress of the Odyssey. I have also taken great pains, with what success I know not, to correct impatience, irritability, and other like faults in my own character, and this not because I care two straws about my own character, but because I find the correction of such faults as I have been able to correct makes life easier and saves me from getting into scrapes, and attaches nice people to me more readily but I suppose this really is attending to style after all. 1897 Diderot on Criticism Il est si difficile de produire une chose même médiocre. Il est si facile de sentir la médiocrité. I have lately seen this quoted as having been said by Diderot. It is easy to say we feel the mediocrity when we have heard a good many people say that the work is mediocre. But unless in matters about which he has been long conversant, no man can easily form an independent judgment as to whether or not a work is mediocre. I know that in the matter of books, painting, and music I constantly find myself unable to form a settled opinion, till I have heard what many men of varied tastes have to say, and have also made myself acquainted with details about a man's antecedents and way of life which are generally held to be irrelevant. Often, of course, this is unnecessary. A man's character, if he has left much work behind him, or if he is not coming before us for the first time, is generally easily discovered without extraneous aid. We want no one to give us any clues to the nature of such men as Giovanni Bellini or de Hugues. Hogarth's character is written upon his work so plainly that he who runs it may read it. So is Handel's upon his, so is Purcell's, so is Corelli's. So, indeed, are the characters of most men but often where only little work has been left or where work is by a new hand, it is exceedingly difficult, sentir la mediocrité, and it might be added, ou même sentir de tout. How many years, I wonder, was it before I learned to dislike Thackeray and Tennyson as cordially as I do now? 
for how many years did I not almost worship them? Bunyan and Others I have been reading The Pilgrim's Progress again, the third part and all, and wish that someone would tell me what to think about it. The English is racy, vigorous, and often very beautiful, but the language of any book is nothing except in so far as it reveals the writer. The words in which a man clothes his thoughts are like all other clothes. The cut raises presumptions about his thoughts, and these generally turn out to be just, but the words are no more the thoughts than a man's coat is himself. I am not sure, however, that in Bunyan's case the dress in which he has clothed his ideas does not reveal him more justly than the ideas do. The Pilgrim's Progress consists mainly of a series of infamous libels upon life and things. It is a blasphemy against certain fundamental ideas of right and wrong which our consciences most instinctively approve. Its notion of heaven is hardly higher than a transformation scene at Drury Lane. It is essentially infidel. Hold out to me the chance of a golden crown and harp with freedom from all further worries. Give me angels to flatter me and fetch and carry for me and I shall think the game worth playing, notwithstanding the great and horrible risk of failure. But no crown, no cross for me. Pay me well, and I will wait for payment. But if I have to give credit, I shall expect to be paid better in the end. There is no conception of the faith that a man should do his duty cheerfully with all his might, though. As far as he can see, he will never be paid directly or indirectly, either here or hereafter. Still less is there any conception that, unless a man has this faith, he is not worth thinking about. There is no sense that we have received freely, so we should give freely, and be only too thankful that we have anything to give at all. Furthermore, there does not appear to be even the remotest conception that this honorable, comfortable, and sustaining faith is, like all other high faiths, to be brushed aside very preemptorily at the bidding of common sense. What a pity it is that Christian never met Mr. Common Sense, with his daughter Good Humor, and her affianced husband, Mr. Hate Cant. But if he ever saw them in the distance, he steered clear of them, probably as feeling that they would be more dangerous than Giant Despair, Vanity Fair, and Napoleon altogether, for they would have stuck to him if he had let them get in with them. Among other things, they would have told him that, if there was any truth in his opinions, Neither man nor woman ought to become a father or mother at all, inasmuch as their doing so would probably entail eternity of torture on the wretched creature whom they were launching into the world. Life in this world is risk enough to inflict on another person who has not been consulted in the matter. But death will give quittance in full. To weaken our faith in this and certain hope of peace eternal, except so far as we have so lived as to win life in others after we are gone, would be a cruel thing, even though the evidence against it were overwhelming. But to rob us of it, on no evidence worth a moment's consideration, and apparently from no other motive than the pecuniary advantage of the robbers themselves, is infamy. For the churches are but institutions for the saving of men's souls from hell. This is true enough. Nevertheless, it is untrue that in practice any Christian minister— knowing what he preaches to be both very false and very cruel, yet insists on it because it is to the advantage of his own order. In a way, the preachers believe what they preach, but it is as men who have taken a bad ten-pound note and refuse to look at the evidence that makes for its badness, 
though if the note were not theirs, they would see at a glance that it was not a good one. For the man in the street it is enough that what the priests teach in respect of a future state is palpably both cruel and absurd, while, at the same time, they make their living by teaching it and thus prey upon other men's fears of the unknown. If the churches do not wish to be misunderstood, they should not allow themselves to remain in such an equivocal position. But let this pass. Bunyan, we may be sure, took all that he preached in its most literal interpretation. He could never have made his book so interesting had he not done so. The interest of it depends almost entirely on the unquestionable good faith of the writer, and the strength of the impulse that compelled him to speak that which was within him. He was not writing a book which he might sell, he was speaking what was borne in upon him from heaven. The message he uttered was, to my thinking, both low and false, but it was truth of truths to Bunyan. No, this will not do. The epistles of St. Paul were truth of truths to Paul, but they do not attract us to the man who wrote them, and, except here and there, they are very uninteresting. Mere strength of conviction on a writer's part is not enough to make his work take permanent rank. Yet I know that I could read the whole of Pilgrim's Progress, except occasional episodical sermons, without being at all bored by it, whereas having spent a penny upon Mr. Steed's abridgment of Joseph Andrews, I had to give it up as putting me out of all patience. I then spent another penny on an abridgment of Gulliver's Travels, and was enchanted by it. What is it that makes one book so readable and another so unreadable? Swift, from all I can make out, was a far more human and genuine person than he is generally represented, but I do not think I should have liked him, whereas Fielding, I am sure, must have been delightful. Why do the faults of his work overweigh its many great excellences, while the less great excellences of the voyage to Lilliput outweigh its more serious defects? I suppose it is the prolixity of Fielding that fatigues me. Swift is terse. He gets through what he has to say on any matter as quickly as he can and takes the reader on to the next, whereas Fielding is not only long, but his length is made still longer by the disconnectedness of the episodes that appear to have been padded into the books, episodes that do not help one forward and are generally so exaggerated and often so full of horseplay as to put one out of conceit with the parts that are really excellent. Whatever else Bunyan is, he is never long. He takes you quickly on from incident to incident, and, however little his incidents may appeal to us, we feel that he is never giving us one that is not bona fide as far as he is concerned. His episodes and incidents are introduced not because he wants to make his book longer, but because he cannot be satisfied without these particular ones, even though he may feel that his book is getting longer than he likes. And here I must break away from this problem, leaving it unsolved. 1897. Bunyan and the Odyssey. Anything worse than the Pilgrim's Progress in the matter of defiance of literary canons can hardly be conceived. The allegory halts continually. It professes to be spiritual, but nothing can be more carnal than the golden splendor of the eternal city. The view of life and the world generally is flat blasphemy against the order of things with which we are surrounded. Yet, like the Odyssey, which flatly defies sense and criticism—no, it doesn't, still, it defies them a good deal—no one can doubt that it must rank among the very greatest books that have ever been written. 
how odyssean it is in its sincerity and downrightness as well as in the marvellous beauty of its language its freedom from all taint of the schools and not least in complete victory of genuine internal zeal over a scheme initially so faulty as to appear hopeless i read that part where christian passes the lions which he thought were free but which were really chained and it occurred to me that all lions are chained until they actually eat us and that the moment they do this they chain themselves up again automatically as far as we are concerned if one dissects this passage it fares as many a passage in the odyssey does when we dissect it christian did not after all venture to pass the lions till he was assured that they were chained and really it is more excusable to refuse point-blank to pass a couple of lions till one knows whether they are chained or not and the poor wicked people seem to have done nothing more than this than it would be to pass them besides by being told christian fights as it were with loaded dice poetry the greatest poets never write poetry the homers and shakespeare's are not the greatest they are only the greatest that we can know and so with handel among musicians for the highest poetry whether in music or literature is ineffable it must be felt from one person to another it cannot be articulated verse versifying is the lowest form of poetry and the last thing a great poet will do in these days is to write verses i have been trying to read venus and adonis and the rape of lucrece but cannot get on with them they teem with fine things but they are got up fine things i do not know whether this is quite what i mean but come what may i find the poems bore me were i a schoolmaster i should think i was setting a boy a very severe punishment if i told him to read venus and adonis through in three sittings if then the magic of shakespeare's name let alone the great beauty of occasional passages cannot reconcile us for i find most people of the same mind to verse and especially rhymed verse as a medium of sustained expression what chance has any one else it seems to me that a sonnet is the utmost length to which a rhymed poem should extend verse poetry and prose the preface to bunyan's pilgrim progress is verse but it is not poetry the body of the work is poetry but it is not verse ancient work if a person would understand either the odyssey or any other ancient work he must never look at the dead without seeing the living in them nor at the living without thinking of the dead we are too fond of seeing the ancients as one thing and the moderns as another nausicaa and myself i am elderly grey-bearded and according to my clerk alfred disgustingly fat i wear spectacles and get more and more bronchitic as i grow older still no young prince in a fairy story ever found an invisible princess more effectually hidden behind a hedge of dullness or more fast asleep than nausicaa was when i woke her and hailed her as authoress of the odyssey and there was no difficulty about it either all one had to do was go up to the front door and ring the bell telemachus and nicholas nickleby the virtuous young man defending a virtuous mother against a number of powerful enemies is one of the ignis fatui of literature the scheme ought to be very interesting and often is so but it always fails as regards the hero 
who from telemachus to nicholas nickleby is always too much of the good young man to please gadshill and trapani while getting our lunch one sunday at the east end of the long room in the sir john falstaff inn gadshill we overheard some waterside-looking dwellers in the neighborhood talking among themselves i wrote down the following bill oh yes i've got a mate that works in my shop he's chucked the dining-room because they give him too much to eat he found another place where they gave him four pennyworth of meat and two vegetables and it was quite as much as he could put up with george you can't kid me bill that they give you too much to eat but i'll believe it to oblige you bill shall i see you to-night bill no i must go to church george well so must i i've got to go so at trapani i heard two small boys one night on the quay i am sure i have written this down somewhere but it is less trouble to write it again than to hunt for it singing with all their might with their arms round one another's necks i should say they were about ten years old not more i asked ignazio giacalone what are they singing he replied that it was a favorite song among the popolino of trapani about a girl who did not want to be seen going about with a man the people in this place says the song are very ill-natured and if they see you and me together they will talk i do not say that there was any dissent here from nausicaa's speech to ulysses but i felt as though that speech was still in the air footnote the odyssey book six line two hundred and seventy three end footnote i reckon gadsill and trapani as perhaps the two most classic grounds that i frequent familiarly and at each i have seemed to hear echoes of the scenes that have made them famous not that what i heard at gadshill is like any particular passage in shakespeare waiting to be hired at castelvetrano about thirty miles from trapani i had to start the next morning at four a m to see the ruins of selinunte and slept lightly with my window open about two o'clock i began to hear a buzz of conversation in the piazza outside and it kept me awake so i got up to shut the window and see what it was i found it came from a long knot of men standing about too deep but not strictly marshalled when i got up at half-past three it was still dark and the men were still there though perhaps not so many i inquired and found they were standing to be hired for the day anyone wanting laborers would come there engage as many as he wanted and go off with them others would come up and so on till about four o'clock after which no one would hire the day being regarded as short in wait after that hour being so collected the men gossip over their own and other people's affairs wonder who was that fine-looking stranger going about yesterday with nausicaa and so on footnote the odyssey book six line two hundred and seventy three end footnote this in fact is their club and the place where the public opinion of the district is formed ilium and padua the story of the trojan horse is more nearly within possibility than we should readily suppose in eighteen forty eight during the rebellion of the north italians against the austrians eight or nine young men for whom the authorities were hunting hid themselves inside donatello's wooden horse in the salone at padua and lay there for five days being fed through the trap-door on the back of the horse with the connivance of the custode of the salone no doubt they were let out for a time at night when pursuit had become less hot their friends smuggled them away one of those who had been shut up was still living in eighteen ninety eight 
and on the occasion of the jubilee festivities was carried round the town in triumph eumaeus and lord burleigh the inference which arthur platt journal of philology volume twenty four number forty seven wishes to draw from eumaeus being told to bring ulysses bow the odyssey book twenty one line two hundred thirty four suggests to met to me the difference which some people in future ages may wish to draw between the character of lord burleigh's steps in tennyson's poem according as he was walking up or pacing down wherefrom also the critic will argue that the scene of lord burleigh's weeping must have been on an inclined plane weeping weeping late and early walking up and pacing down deeply mourned the lord of burleigh burleigh house by stamford town my reviewer's sense of need my reviewers felt no sense of need to understand me if they had they would have developed the mental organism which would have enabled them to do so when the time comes that they want to do so they will throw out a little mental pseudopodium without much difficulty they threw it out when they wanted to misunderstand me with a good deal of the pseudo in it too the authoress of the odyssey the amount of pains which my reviewers have taken to understand this book is not so great as to encourage the belief that they would understand the odyssey however much they studied it again the people who could read the odyssey without coming to much the same conclusions as mine are not likely to admit that they ought to have done so if a man tells me that a house in which i have long lived is inconvenient not to say unwholesome and that i have been very stupid in not finding this out for myself i should be apt in the first instance to tell him that he knew nothing about it and that i was quite comfortable by and by i should begin to be aware that i was not so comfortable as i thought i was and in the end i should probably make the suggested alterations in my house if on reflection i found them sensibly conceived but i should kick hard at first homer and his commentators homeric commentators have been blind so long that nothing will do for them but homer must be blind too they have transferred their own blindness to the poet the iliad in the iliad civilization bursts upon us as a strong stream out of a rock we know that the water has gathered from many a distant vein underground but we do not see these or it is like the drawing up the curtain on the opening of a play the scene is then first revealed glacial periods of folly the moraines left by secular glacial periods of folly stretch out over many a plain of our civilization so in the odyssey especially in the second twelve books whenever anyone eats meat it is called sacrificing it as though we were descended from a race that did not eat meat then it was said that meat might be eaten if one did not eat the life what was the life clearly the blood for when you stick a pig it lives till the blood is gone you must sacrifice the blood therefore to the gods but so long as you abstain from things strangled and from blood and so long as you call it sacrificing you may eat as much meat as you please what a mountain of lies what a huge geological formation of falsehood with displacement of all kinds and strata twisted every conceivable way must have accreted before the odyssey was possible translations from verse into prose 
whenever this is attempted great license must be allowed to the translator in getting rid of all those poetical common forms which are foreign to the genius of prose if the work is to be translated into prose let it be into such prose as we write and speak among ourselves a volume of poetical prose i e affected prose had better be in verse outright at once poetical prose is never tolerable for more than a very short bit at a time and it may be questioned whether poetry itself is not better kept short in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred. Translating the Odyssey If you wish to preserve the spirit of a dead author, you must not skin him, stuff him, and set him up in a case. You must eat him, digest him, and let him live in you with such life as you have for better or worse. The difference between the Andrew Lang manner of translating the Odyssey and mine is that between making a mummy and a baby. He tries to preserve a corpse, for the Odyssey is a corpse to all who need Lang's translation, whereas I try to originate a new life, and one that is instinct, as far as I can effect this, with the spirit, though not the form of the original. They say no woman could possibly have written the Odyssey. To me, on the other hand, it seems even less possible that a man could have done so. As for its being by a practiced and elderly writer, Nothing but youth and inexperience could produce anything so naive and so lovely. That is where the work will suffer by my translation. I am male, practiced, and elderly, and the trail of sex, age, and experience is certain to be over my translation. If the poem is ever to be well translated, it must be by some high-spirited English girl who has been brought up at Athens and who, therefore, has not been jaded by academic study of the language. A translation is at best a dislocation. A translation from verse to prose is a double dislocation, and corresponding further dislocations are necessary if an effect of deformity is to be avoided. The people who, when they read Athene, translated by Minerva, cannot bear in mind that every Athene varies more or less with, and takes color from, the country and temperament of the writer who is being translated, will not be greatly helped by translating Athene and not Minerva. Besides, many readers would pronounce the word as a dissyllable or an anapest. The Odyssey and a Tomb at Carcassonne There is a tomb at some place in France, I think at Carcassonne, on which there is some sculpture representing the friends and relation of the deceased in paroxysms of grief, with their cheeks all cracked, and crying like Gaudenzio's angels on the Sacromonte at Verallo Sassia. Round the corner, however, just out of sight till one searches, there is a man holding both his sides and splitting with laughter. In some parts of the Odyssey, especially about Ulysses and Penelope, I fancy that laughing man as being round the corner. October 1891 Getting it wrong Zeferino Caristia, a sculptor, told me we had a great sculptor in England named Simpson. I demurred and asked about his work. It seemed he had made a monument to Nelson in Westminster Abbey. Of course I saw he meant Stevens, who had made a monument to Wellington in St. Paul's. I cross-questioned him and found I was right. Suppose that in some ancient writer I had come upon a similar error, about which I felt no less certain than I did here, ought I to be debarred from my conclusion merely by the accident that I have not the wretched muddler at my elbow and cannot ask him personally? People are always getting things wrong. It is the critic's business to know how and when to believe on insufficient evidence, 
and to know how far to go in the matter of setting people right without going too far. The question of what is too far and what is sufficient evidence can only be settled by the higgling and haggling of the literary market. So I justify my emendation of the Grotta del Toro at Trapani, the authoress of the Odyssey, chapter 8. Il toro macinia in tesoro di oro. The bull is grinding a treasure of gold. In the grotto in which, for other reasons, I am convinced Ulysses hid the gifts the Phaeacians had given him. And so the grotto is called La Grotta del Toro, the grotto of the bull. I make no doubt it was originally called La Grotta del Tesoro, the grotto of the treasure. But children got it wrong and corrupted Tesoro into Toro, then it being known that the Tesoro was in it somehow, the Toro was made to grind the Tesoro. End of section 16. Recording by Rebecca Nance.